Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. It is amazing. If you are the darling of the liberal media, what you can get away with. Uh, John Chisholm, the... Very, very liberal district attorney in Milwaukee County who predicted in 2007 that people would die as a result of his various policies, but he believed that they were right in general. Well, his prediction has come true, and you have a guy who was released on a very, very inadequate bail who's now killed six people. And John Chisholm, this happened, the Waukesha Christmas Parade murders happened a week ago Sunday. You know, we're now pushing 10 days. And John Chisholm, other than the letter that they released where they said there was a problem, there's been no public comment. Now, can you imagine if this was a, a different sort of situation, you would have Channel 4, Channel 6, Channel 58, Channel 12. You would have the Journal Sentinel camped out. They would be following John Chisholm all around, trying to get comments on what is going on here. But yet, it, it just, it's just crickets. There's no, well, he, he says he doesn't want to talk to anybody, so we're just going to let him get away with this. Now, I on if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. I, I I retweeted something that um, my my former colleague Charlie Sykes had put out on on his website that that underscores something that I have been saying for the last ten days. What happened with Daryl Brooks a week ago Sunday is not an aberration. It is part of a systematic situation where for the last several years, dangerous criminals have been released on incredibly low bail and they have reoffended. But for whatever reasons, the media in this town has, I don't know whether they just don't cover it or we don't pay attention to it, but we, it hasn't been focused on a, at all. And again, the, the piece that Sykes has up underscores this and it goes in and it ties into some of the other things that I have been forwarding and writing and retweeting over the last week about how many people over the years in Milwaukee County have been let out on, on bail and have re- reoffended, have been let out on probation, have been no process saying, okay, well, we're, we're just going to forget about this and how many subsequent crimes have been committed. And yes, it's not all Daryl Brooks. They, they haven't all gone out to kill six people, but they have gone on to stab people. They've gone on to commit other violent crimes. It, it's just, it's this revolving door that demonstrates what a failure the policies of the district attorney have been over the course of the last decade. And he's gotten away with it because, again, he's the darling of the liberal media. He gets written up in the New York Times about, hey, this is this progressive prosecutor who's got this different approach on crime, which is essentially to turn people loose and hope that they're not going to do it again. And he's been able to get away with this for years and nobody's paid attention to it. And I I guess maybe he's still getting away with it. I've said this before. I mean, here's the challenge to all 
all these different TV stations who are always looking for things to do in sweeps week. And, and this is low-hanging fruit. Just start looking at all the different serious crimes that have been committed in Milwaukee County, say, in the last year. Look at the dispositions of these. Are they on bail? Are they awaiting trial? If so, have they reoffended and have they been put back on bail again? I am telling you, this this is what the significance of what happened at the Waukesha Parade was for the overall system beyond just the incredible tragedy for all the different victims and the victims' families. This is a systematic problem. And why you need to care about this, maybe you want to say, well, it's Milwaukee County. You know, I, I don't want to travel to Milwaukee County because we understand that, you know, you've got, what, a 30 cars a day that are stolen. It's this incredible number of cars that are stolen that you don't want to take your life in your hands going into the downtown, into the city of Milwaukee. I understand why you might want to say that. But here's the bottom line. These soft-on-crime, turn-dangerous-people, loose policies affect everybody in our region. Right, you might say, hey, I live in Waukesha. What do I care about whether they're turning dangerous criminals loose in Milwaukee? Well, okay, Daryl Brooks was turned loose in Milwaukee, and he ended up killing all those people in Waukesha at the Christmas parade. So, you know, what happens with the revolving door? And I don't even want to say criminal justice system anymore. And don't even get me started about juveniles. I mean, juveniles, that, that's a bigger joke, and we never even know about that because juvenile records are sealed. So you never find out the dispositions of this. You never find out, for example, how many times some kid has stolen cars, been released on recognizance, sent back to his parents, and 24 hours later stole another car. You never find out any of that stuff unless and until the kid steals the car and then drives over and kills the 46-year-old woman out by um, you know Mayfair Shopping Center. Then maybe you hear about it. But you know, we don't wave people into adult court. And keep in mind, remember how quickly we forget. There was that guy, the kid that shot up Mayfair Mall, which shot seven or eight people. He's being treated as a juvenile. This is what passes for a criminal justice system around here. It is policies that are implemented by judges, and it's policies that are implemented by the DAs. It's not the cops. The cops do their job. They'll tell you they are incredibly frustrated. But the bottom line of all this is, if there is any sort of silver lining which comes from the very, very dark cloud of what happened a week ago, maybe it's that we will wake up around here and recognize that you need a sea change in attitudes. This soft on crime, revolving door criminal justice system where we err on trying to constantly put people back on the streets, hoping that they are not going to reoffend in despite overwhelming evidence that they are in fact reoffending. This system does not work. People die, people get hurt. People have their property taken from them. It's a complete and total failure. And that's that's really, I hope, the lesson moving forward. I don't know if Daryl, I mean, people are obsessing about, gee, should this have been a hate crime? Did he hate white people? Is that why he did it? I, I don't know. Don't know. That's not the big issue, though. The big issue is he shouldn't have been in a position to do this. And how many more of those Daryl Brooks are out there? And how long is it going to be before somebody somewhere holds the district attorney accountable for these policies that he correctly predicted 14 years ago would lead to exactly what happened two weeks ago? In any event, if if you want to see the latest, I I forwarded the uh, Charlie Sykes article about this, which 
it reiterates a number of things that I've been saying over the course of the, the last 10 days. But, you know, there, there's, if there's going to be anything good that comes of this, it's maybe we will wake up and recognize that you need a, a change. I said earlier, I think it's time for John Chisholm to resign. I think these are the chickens coming home to roost. I have no hope that he is going to do that. But maybe, just maybe, we can start shining lights on what is going on and how at risk everybody in this region is because of what they're doing in Milwaukee. When we come back, all right, your kid is involved in a fight. What do you do? I'll tell you what two people did and we'll discuss. Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, if you want to understand why things are so out of control in public schools nowadays, let me give you Exhibit A, story from the local newspaper. Mother and daughter from Milwaukee charged an incident involving a taser at Nathan Hale High School in West Dallas. Okay, I admit that the, the headline kind of got my attention. A mother and daughter from Milwaukee have been charged in connection with an incident at Nathan Hale High School in West Dallas in which a student was struck by a taser following a fight with another student. Um, okay. Catelia Scott, 50, and Danielle Lesour, 28, each face a felony charge of being party to a crime of physical abuse of a child with a dangerous weapon, according to charges. All right. Um, West Dallas police responded to Nathan Hale High School about 1144 a.m. November 16th after receiving a report of a fight between two students and someone else armed with a taser. All right. According to police, the incident started when two female Hale students a 14-year-old from West Dallas and a 15-year-old from Milwaukee became involved in a physical fight. All right, unfortunately, that is not an unusual sort of story. you got these two kids that are involved in, in a fight. Shortly after the fight ended, police said two women associated with the 15-year-old arrived and were allowed into the school building by a friend of the 15-year-old. A student who witnessed the altercation said the 15-year-old told her she contacted the two adults and they were on their way to the school. Okay, so 14 and a 15-year-old get into a fight. The 15-year-old calls presumably her, her mother and someone else and says, I've been involved in a fight. So the two adults rush to the school. One of the 15-year-old's friends lets them into the school. The observing student told the 15-year-old she shouldn't have done that, and the 15-year-old responded, it's too late now. The women entered the building and began asking, where's she at, according to the complaint. The observing student told police that one of the women walked up to the 14-year-old and swung at her, and the other woman had a taser and began tasing the 14-year-old. Mother and a daughter showing up. Um, the mother initially, let's see, the mother, 50, initially denied using a taser, saying it was a cell phone and an app that made a taser sound, but later admitted to police that she was armed with a taser. She told police she disposed of it in a gas station dumpster, according to the complaint. She made her preliminary court appearance November 22nd. A cash bond of $1,000 was set, and a preliminary hearing was scheduled for December 1st. As an aside, the lady that shows 
up at Nathan Hale High School and tases the 14-year-old. She's out on a $1,000 cash bail. What was the cash bond for Daryl Brooks, who had a lengthy criminal record and tried to run somebody over? Oh, yeah, that was $1,000 as well. More evidence about how screwed up the system is. An arrest warrant has been issued for Lesore, according to online court records. The 14-year-old was arrested by police on suspicion of battery, but they did not have an update regarding a charging decision because, of course, this is the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office and they can't be bothered with things like that. They've been in contact with the 15-year-old, but no citations or charges have been issued. So here you have the deal. Two high school kids duke it out in the hallway. They separate it. The fight's over. The 15-year-old has called mom and mom's daughter, and they rush to the school. They're allowed into the school. They find the 14-year-old. One takes a swing at her. The other tases her. All right. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, there's many aspects of this story that I find to be interesting, including um, I guess it's kind of the Lord of the Flies mentality. Whenever I hear stories like this, I always think of my parents growing up, and I'm trying to imagine, gee, um, I got involved in a fight at school, Dad or Mom. Can't exactly see Mom grabbing you know, her sister or one of my relatives rushing to the school with the idea that they were going to seek out whoever I'd been involved with a fight and then zap them with a taser. I just, it's, it's just kind of a different mindset that, that's out there, kind of this sort of Lord of the Flies uh, mentality that's there. I guess the other thing that really strikes me about the story, and this is what I'd like to discuss with you, is how easy is it to get into Nathan Hale High School? I mean, I guess that's one of the aspects that, that struck me. I thought we're supposed to have some sort of security. I thought we're supposed to have some sort of, I, I don't know, control over the flow of people coming in. In this particular situa- situation, you have two kids that are involved in a fight. One calls mom. Mom's reaction is to come down looking for vengeance. And, and all it takes is some other 15-year-old who's just waiting to let them in. And no school officials apparently are aware of this. And this, you know, re- escalates to the point that they're able to not only get into the building armed, in one case with a taser, they're able to get into the building armed, they're able to go far enough into the building to find the 14-year-old, and then they're able to assault the 14-year-old. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, a lot of blame to go around here. I, I, I understand it. It's an evidence of a completely dysfunctional sort of system. But is it really that easy for adults to get into schools, find 14-year-old kids, and attack them? And if so, why? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Doesn't make you feel very safe with your kids going to school if this is all it takes. Well, yeah, I knew I knew mom was coming down and mom was going to be looking for the kids. So the friend is there, lets the door, opens the door, and apparently the mom is able to go through the halls till she finds the 14-year-old and zap her with a taser. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, I think this just goes to show you with the schools and their lack of resource officers, because they don't want police being around the kids all the time, that this is what you get. Well, it, it certainly is. Look, now, I, I am somewhat sympathetic 
to the idea that you know, schools have a lot of doors and there, there's going to be ways that people end up getting in. For example, the 15-year-old that let this lady, these two women in, I, I think she has to be expelled or suspended. I mean, she's one that, that caused this problem. But the overriding thing is, what does this say about school security? Where you can just, hey, there, there's this fight. And if you look at a lot of the fights that happen, this is what makes it worse. The school officials, they get it under control. In this case, it's a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old who are fighting with, with each other. They get it separated. They get it under control. But because you have mom and whoever rushing to the school because they decide that they want to get involved. And what kind of 50-year-old woman decides that she's going to rush to the school and her reaction is that she's going to taser the 14-year-old kid who was fighting with her 15-year-old? I mean, really, this is the reaction and this is, you know, what ends up, you know, happening. Um, Jeff, not sure about Nathan Hale, but when I was in high school at Tosa West, we had a guard on the door who made all guests sign in. Doors weren't locked, though. Well, now the doors are, are in fact, locked. I guess this is... We, we talk about all these different precautions, but look, th- this woman, she showed up with a taser. Okay, I, I get it. And, and so you have a situation where a 14-year-old is tased. But what if this is a situation where... All right, you know we're going to show up with with a gun. Maybe she decides that that house she's that's how she's going to settle it. And this could have been a lot worse than having the taser that's there. Um, how how do you let something like this go on? One of our texters says the whole district was out of control when I was a substitute teacher there, and it sounds like it still is. Administrators there are way too lenient and do not use enough discipline. Well. That's certainly the case here because it seems like the idea of discipline falls to the 50-year-old mother who thinks it's a good idea to show up at school with a, a taser. This time it's a taser. Next time it could be much, much worse. What the heck is going on with school security? This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Remember... It was FDR, I think, who said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And I wonder if we should perhaps remember those words moving forward. On Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, we got some reports out of South Africa that they had found uh, another variant. And there's all sorts of, we we found all these different variants to COVID, all right? There's... There's a number of variants, you know, and you hear about the Delta variant, but all these other variations of the virus, nobody gets too concerned about them because they're all slight variations. Well, this variation, they call it Omicron and um, or Omicron. You can pronounce it either way. That's fine. And they announced it on Thursday. Well, we found it in South Africa and there might be some limited. It might have gone to other parts of the world and we don't know anything about it. That's what the report was. We We don't know. We don't know if this is more significant or less significant as far as like the consequences and the effects of, of Delta. They say we, we, we just don't know. You know, we, we found it in South Africa. We found it in some younger people and the cases seem to be mild, but it could just be because we're finding it mostly in, in younger people. But, but the idea is we, we don't know. It, it's not like this is a new version of, of the plague. It could be worse, but it, but it might not be worse. We, we don't know that. We don't know if it's more transmissible or less transmissible than ordinary COVID or Delta. We don't know 
whether um, the vaccines that are there are effective against it or not. We don't know if uh, the immunity that people have as a result of already contracting COVID, we don't know if if that's going to be good or not. We, we just don't know. And so that, that's it. There's a lot of we, we just don't know. And by the way, we don't know if the boosters are going to work or not. They might, but we, we just don't know. So th- this is on on Thursday. It, it's a we don't know. We we found th- this new variant that's out there, and my guess is that this story this is not going to be unusual. Get used to this because there's going to be this virus isn't going anywhere. I don't think, and there's going to be all sorts of variations that are going to come up. I wouldn't be surprised if you see stories like this once or twice or three times a year. I think that's just the the reality of this. So what happens? Well, you get just hair on fire reactions. The stock market on Friday goes into the tank completely. People are all freaked out. Okay, well, maybe we're going to have to lock down things and stuff like that. Now, across the world, and this is something that I did support, they put in temporary like travel holds. Let's try to figure out what's going on. But it's not like anybody was talking about lockdowns. It's not like we're talking about this being the bubonic plague. We just don't know anything about this. And yet we are in this worldwide panic. The stock market, after making a modest comeback yesterday, well, it's in the tank again. The Dow down 540 points, NASDAQ down 230 points. As people are just panicked, the markets, the businesses are panicked. Oh, is this going to be like another sort of global lockdown? Um, you know, are we going to have to go back to where we were two years ago with everything being shut down and people not being able to go out of their homes? And of course, we, we don't know any of this. There's no evidence that suggests that. There's no evidence that suggests that this is actually going to even, that it's in the United States now, much less that it's spreading all across the United States, and yet we're completely and totally freaked out about this. We don't know if the vaccines work against it, yet we're telling everybody, well, you better go out and get a booster shot. Now, I'm not against vaccines. I'm not against the booster shots. I'm getting a booster shot tomorrow at 4.30. I'm getting my booster. So, I mean, I think that's the right thing to do, but... I guess I, I've been looking at the reactions, and I understand part of this is fueled by the media. I was watching like television last night, and this is it doesn't matter whether you watch the local news or the national news. Doesn't matter, you know, what websites you go on. This is the screaming headline that you've got. Okay, now we've got the Omicron, you know, variant, and th- this might be the end of humanity as we know it, or or maybe not. All right, our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think we need to dial this back a, a, a lot. And, and I think that this, this factor that we're just so willing to be panicked about things is really unhealthy. Uh, look, I, th- this, this could turn out to be really bad. I, I concede it, theoretically. But there's no evidence right now that that is, in fact, the, the case. Matter of fact, the evidence that's coming out of South Africa, at least right now, is that this variant is mild. Now, that might not turn out to be the case. Maybe, you know, a month from now, we'll figure out something different. Maybe two months from now, we'll figure out something different. But, but this idea that, oh my, oh my gosh, you know, we've, that we're going to have to go back to lockdowns. We, we all have to go back to wearing masks. We have to go back to this. We have to worry about all these things. I'm sorry. I don't want to live this way. I think that people need to be responsible. You need to do stuff that fits within your comfort level. But don't we also need to realize that that COVID as a virus is going to be with us 
for for probably most of our lifetimes now. And and yes, you, you want to be smart about it. And yes, nobody wants to get it. But once again, it's not the bluebonic plague for most people. And if you're in one of these high-risk categories, yes, you want to take great care, just like you want to take great care not to get the flu or things like that. And I appreciate that COVID is different than the flu. But still, I mean, if you're in a high-risk category, you want to take all sorts of measures to make sure you don't get sick with various types of things. Are we overreacting to these various variations of COVID? And, and can we continue to live like this? Can we continue to every four or five months? Oh, there's this different variation. The stock market's going to tank. We're all going to get ready to again have to lock down. Or do we just have to go about our, our normal lives? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How are you reacting to the news of the latest variant, which, at least thus far, there's no evidence it's in the United States. It probably is, but there's no evidence that it's in the United States. There's no evidence that it's more as far as consequences, that it's there's no evidence that it's worse than Delta, that it's worse than the regular COVID. Might be, but there's no evidence of this. I mean, how freaked out are you about it? Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that are just really freaked out, and I don't think it's healthy. 855-616-1620. This panic is just, it's almost mind-numbing to me that we're allowing ourselves to just go completely over the edge with a lot of the, the, these panic decisions we're making. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, here's one of the texters. Well, Jeff, simple answer to all this: solve all the COVID problems, get vaccinated. No, no, that that's. I, if you if you read some of the stuff that's out there, there's some people that are freaking out that even if you are in fact vaccinated, that vaccination's not going to protect you against this new variant that's out there. So you know you you need to be worried. Well, at, at some point in time, do do we need to? Maybe at least wait until we we know something about it before that we're going to be panicked about it. I mean, and and yet, I mean, this this thing only hits nation worldwide. It hits on Thursday, and already you've got people who are just again completely freaked out. Our hair head is hair is on fire. Oh, this is terrible. And I guess I just don't think it's healthy to live in this sort of environment. I mean, again, maybe I'm downplaying this. I'm vaccinated. Going to get the booster shot tomorrow made the decision to do it, have my flu shot, I've had COVID, I have to tell you, I'm not worried. I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just, I am not worried about it because there's so many other things that I want to worry about that I have to worry about in my life. I, I'm not going to worry about this, something that may become an issue, but right now, you know, isn't. Let's talk to Julie. Julie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, How Julie. are you? Good. What do you think? Well, I have to be honest with you. I feel like uh, a little bit of panic might be good because I'd rather have people be panicked enough to go and get their vaccinations. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm triple vaccinated. All my family is. I, I think uh, the people out there that are nervous saying, well, I shouldn't go get vaccinated because there's just going to be another variant. Um, what we know about the flu vaccination, for example, is it takes um, it, it takes out 40 to 60 percent of the variants of the flu vaccine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take them all out. Mm-hmm. 
we we've known this for forever about the flu vaccine. So I mean, to have uh, a variant that's not covered by the vaccine doesn't mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. Right. Well, let me ask I you this. Okay, wrong. as you are, you're 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 double vaccinated. You've had your booster and all that type of stuff. Are you worried about this new variant? I I'm worried about this new variant because I work in healthcare and I work with the elderly. Yeah. So I'm worried about the new variant for the elderly, not so much for myself and my family. No. Okay, good enough. Okay, thanks for calling. And again, I, this isn't I, I, to me. See, th- this is one of the things because we're. I'm. I think part of the thing that's driving it, and, and we just don't know. I mean, I, I'm listening to some of these experts say, "Well, get vaccinated." And, and look, I'm not anti-vaccination. I don't disagree with what Julie said. I've done that myself. But at the same time, we're saying get vaccinated. But just so you know, it, the, the vaccines might not work against this new variant, which isn't a reason not to get vaccinated. But before we tell people that and before we scare people in that fashion, should we know? Should, I mean, it's this this variation has only been around for a couple days. We We just don't know whether it's going to work or not. Maybe instead of just hair on fire, let's scare the crap out of everybody. Maybe it should just be, look, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're, we're studying this. We're, we don't know whether it's more severe or less severe. I mean, that's what I keep coming back to some of the initial reports before everybody panicked about this. The initial reports out of South Africa were, we, we believe this might be milder. Now, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying that they said, hey, we, we believe this must be might be milder, although, admittedly, the people that we've been studying that had it tend to be younger. So, you know, that, that just might be effect of them being younger. But it, it's not, again... People just hear what they want to hear, and they decide that they want to, you know, they, they want to be scared about it. And I just, I don't want to live like that for the next 15 or 20 years. And that's kind of what we're looking at. You get the idea that we're overreacting because, all right, this is the latest thing. This is something that nobody ever heard about until last Thursday, and now it's, oh my gosh, you know, we might have to shut down the world again. Well, I I just, I don't buy that. I think what you have to do is just take this in stride and make sort of conscious efforts. Jeff, I'm vaccinated. I have been since April. I wasn't really concerned about getting COVID before that or since, and I'm not really concerned about the new variant myself. COVID is a part of our lives for the foreseeable future, and I think we all need to accept that and stop acting like it's all brand new again. Yeah, I I think that's the case. You know, one of the things that I, I, I firmly believe that we have have done is I, I think in some respects we focused on some of the wrong things when we look at COVID. If you look at the reports, even on, on a daily basis, what's the thing you see? You see the number of cases. These are the number of COVID cases that are out there. I think that's a misleading indicator. What we really want to look at, it seems to me, is you want to look at the number of hospitalizations and you want to look at the number of deaths, the, the serious results. I mean, look, I, I know people... In the last month, I know one, two, maybe three people who've had breakthrough cases of COVID, right? They were, they were vaccinated. They've had, they, they somehow they got, they got diagnosed with COVID again. In all those cases, it was extremely mild. The vaccines, while they didn't prevent them, I guess, from getting the breakthrough case, it, it, they, they did not get sick. It was, again, a mild cold and, you know, they were better in a, in a couple of days. They isolated and did those things. So, you know, did you want to see them have that breakthrough case? 
No. But I guess part of the thing that we have to look at, seems to me, is, again, you know, what's the effect of this? And maybe to the point that Julie was making, maybe you can use that as a way of trying to convince that percentage of the population that's decided they don't want to get vaccinated, that maybe this is the thing to do. But as far as this this, this panic and, oh, we've got to sell and, oh, we're going to have these lockdowns and, and, oh, we need that we can't get together in groups anymore. And, oh, we all need to wear masks everywhere we go because of this, despite the fact that you're vaccinated. I'm sorry. I just don't think we can live in this constant, gee, I'm afraid of this or I'm afraid of that. Or every time somebody finds some new strain of something somewhere, that that's going to be, oh, my gosh, we go into this worldwide panic. You you have to be smart. And I, I will acknowledge this. I thought Biden, while somewhat slow, did the right thing by saying, "Okay, at least short term, let's. Let's put on a travel ban. Let's try to figure out, you know, where, what we're dealing with here. And I thought that was reasonable for a very short period of time once we know. But, you know, if you're supposed to follow the science, don't you have to figure out what the science is before you panic? And my answer would be, uh, yeah, that's the better way to go. They're back. Cocoa and candy cream, candy cane cream puffs at the Wisconsin State Fair Park for one weekend only. drive through pickup is available December 9th through the 12th, so pre-order now at statefaircreampuffs.com and save. Did you know you can freeze your puffs, too? Order extra to enjoy all winter long. Limited edition cocoa and candy cane cream puffs. Try saying that three times fast. At the Wisconsin State Fair Park, get more information at statefaircreampuffs.com. And for official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. Yes, I said contest because I have a six-pack of cocoa and or candy cane cream puffs to give away. Let's give it to caller number 12 at 855-616-1620. Caller 12, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, wins a six-pack of cream puffs back for the holidays. A couple of people say, Jeff, we, we've got a panic. You don't, you don't understand. COVID, don't, don't you understand that there's like 700-plus seven, thousand Americans have died from COVID? Uh, and this is it, it's just terrible. And of course, you don't want to see anybody die from COVID. You don't want to see anybody die from anything. Many of the people who died from COVID had underlying health conditions um, that that you know COVID's what put them over the edge. But yes, it's terrible. But at the same time, you know, six hundred and fifty nine thousand Americans die yearly from heart disease. Six hundred thousand people die yearly from from cancer. Right. This is just. And that that's on a yearly sort of of basis. And do we do we obsess? Do we sit there and say, well, I I just I'm I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to live my normal life because I'm worried I'm going to get cancer. I'm worried I'm going to get heart disease. I mean, there there are some inherent risks. And I'm not saying be irresponsible with things. But the, the reality is, for whatever reason, there's some people that I just think thrive on being terrified by by the prospect of COVID. And it might be that this new variant is something that's really worth being terrified for. Okay, I understand that. But we don't don't have any evidence that suggests that we don't even have any evidence that it's in the United States right now. So until we know more about it, wouldn't it be smart to simply not panic, decide the world is going to come to an end, we're going to change our lifestyle all again, when it, it might just not rise to that level. And that is my only point. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Uh, during the break, I got a text from one of our listeners about this. Jeff, one of my all-time favorite movie quotes from the movie Men in Black. Tommy Lee Jones, uh, yeah, right, uh, Tommy Jones, Tommy Lee Jones. He had the line, he said, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky animals. Now, I don't know that I fully agree with that, but there, there is, we, we, we do collectively sometimes choose to, to panic. And maybe people think that panic is, is appropriate. And I think there's some of the others of us who think that, you know, maybe a more cautious approach is better unless you want to live in a perpetual state of panic. Okay. Before we move on from the COVID discussion, I, I want to again go where angels fear to tread when it comes to, to one thing. Again, I always have to go through this. Because I, I, I believe in vaccinations. I'm vaccinated. I've had COVID. I have antibodies. I had a test. I have, I've, I've been vaccinated. And I'm going to go get the booster shot tomorrow. So I, I believe that that is important. I also believe that even though once you are vaccinated, I, I, I buy what the science is. The science pretty much says that even though you can get a breakthrough case of COVID, if you've been vaccinated, the chances are your chances of having to be hospitalized after you've been vaccinated are very, very rare. It can be a unicorn situation, but it's very, very rare. And I don't know that there are any, any reported examples of somebody who had vaccine, was fully vaccinated, who had a breakthrough case of COVID and then subsequently transmitted it to someone else who had to be hospitalized. I, I don't know if there, there's ever any real example of that. I guess it's possible in theory, but that's why we, we tell people, hey, get vaccinated because you've got the, this, this safety net that is, that is there. Now, when it comes to wearing masks, I, I understand the president said, well, people need to wear masks. I understand that he's encouraging people to do that. I understand that we have rules in place that say if you're flying on airplanes and you're in close contact with people, you know, you for hours you, you, you need to wear masks. But as a general rule, we do not have mask mandates in most places. In Wisconsin, uh, Dane County, or the city, of, I think Dane County has continued their mask mandate through the end of the year. But the exception is... Um, if you are inside and everybody there is vaccinated, then you don't have to wear masks. Now, to me, that's completely and totally unforceable, be, unenforceable because how are you going to know whether everybody in an enclosed space is vaccinated or not? But anyways, that's what the rule is. Most of our communities, we do not have mask mandates anymore. Now, the health commissioner from the city of Milwaukee, she's under pressure. There's some groups, including the um, Milwaukee Teachers Association, who's saying, well, we need to go back to requiring requiring people to wear masks. Now, one of the things that I have noticed, and I I don't do most of the shopping in our family, thank you, Fran, but every once in a while I I do. And over the weekend, I was out and about just a little bit. I went up to Target, told the story yesterday, I went up to Target to buy light bulbs of of all different things. And I ended up um, going into a grocery store and I went into a hardware store. So I've been around. Now, it's just, it's a limited sample size. Because typically when I go out, I, I go into restaurants. And when I'm in restaurants or bars, I don't see anybody wearing masks. Because as a, the reality is it's just not practical. I mean, if, you, if you're going to be eating, it's just not practical to be in a restaurant or a bar and, you know, having to wear a mask. But 
when I go into, when I went into the Target store, when I went into the hardware store, when I went into the grocery store, I would say about 50% of the people were wearing masks. And and it, it wasn't required by the retailer. These were decisions that people had made. And I really, I wasn't able, I don't have a takeaway as to whether it, it, as to what was a particular age group, I mean, were these like people that were all in the 70s and 80s that I was seeing? I, I don't know. I, I don't have enough of a sample size. But I would say about half the people that I, I saw were, were wearing masks. And I thought that was fine. I was not, by the way. Um, I was fine with that. That was a, a decision that they voluntarily made to do it. If it makes them feel safer, that that's that, that's great, and I don't know their vaccination status. These are people that, you know, maybe maybe they weren't vaccinated, and so that's why they were in fact wearing the masks. I, I don't know, don't know what it was, but I'd say it's about fifty percent, and I, I I think that's great. If people decide that that's the decision that you want to make to to wear the mask, that that's that's fine. My question is, is it time to rethink mask mandates? Given the fact that you've got this mystery variant that's in South Africa now that, you know, m- might be working its way here, is it time to sit and say, okay, well, even though we've got an X percentage of people who are vaccinated, um, we, we need to, even though we, we recognize that if you're vaccinated, your chances of contracting COVID are, are much less and your chances of being hospitalized are much less than that. Is it time to revisit the idea of mask mandates? Should government step in and say, you've got to wear masks? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As far as I'm concerned, if if individual retailers and businesses want to impose that rule, they have the right to do it. And then you or I have the decision as to whether it's enough of an inconvenience that we're not going to patronize the business. They have the right to make the rules. Individuals have the right to decide whether they want to go out and wear masks in public or, heck, if they want to wear masks in private, that's fine. But should government come in and tell businesses and individuals that anytime you're somewhere inside, you now have to go back to wearing masks? 855-616-1620. I'm not on board with that. What do you think? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, it's time to rethink mask mandates. Everyone should be required to be masked 100% of the time. It's the first line of defense against this virus, and it's highly effective. So 100% of the time, anywhere you go, you should wear a mask, which pretty much, all right, means we're going to go back to closing down bars and we're going to be going back to closing down restaurants 100% of the time. Sorry, I, I think... If this is I, somebody else texted me and said, Jeff, I'm 46 years old. I wear a mask all over the place. I'm vaccinated. But you know what? I, I think it's great for my health. I haven't had a cold. I haven't gotten sick since, you know, I, I wear the mask all over to which I say, go with God. I, I think that that's a great individual choice to make. And I understand why people might be making that choice. But that's the individual choice that you make as opposed to the government telling 
you have to. Jeff, I shop in the North Shore, and I'd say about 50% of the people still wear them. I think it's a personal choice. I, I don't think government should require And, you know, that's fine. Jeff, I'm vaccinated and boosted. If we want more people to get vaccinated, requiring people like me to wear a mask will be counterproductive to that effort. And it really doesn't serve that much of a purpose. Yeah, I think you've got, you know, an an element, an element to that. I mean, that's always been the argument. Now, I, I understand that, again, you... And whenever I go down this route, people will say, well, just because you have been vaccinated doesn't mean that you can't get it and that you can't pass it on. And and in the abstract, that is true, although there's not a lot of reported cases of somebody who's been vaccinated getting that breakthrough case and then passing it on to somebody else who is vaccinated. And that causes them to have the breakthrough case. Is it possible it's occurred I guess it's possible, but let's face it, that's not where the major transmission is. The the people, by and large, who are going into the hospitals are the people who are unvaccinated. The people who are coming down with COVID right now, by and large, are, you know, what what was the last numbers I saw in Wisconsin? I think it was like 80% were people who were unvaccinated. So the, the reality is, some point in time, people are making this decision that they're they're choosing to not be vaccinated. Okay, that that's not the purpose of this discussion. But if you make that decision that you're not going to be vaccinated, you understand that you are you are accepting some degree of risk that those people who've made the decision to get vaccinated don't don't have. So I guess at some point in time, the question becomes, if, if you have, in fact, made the decision to get vaccinated and boosted and, and all those things and you don't care to wear a mask for whatever reason that's out there, should the government require you to do that in order to protect somebody who has had the option of getting vaccinated themselves and has decided by and large not to do it? And, and that's sort of the fundamental question. You know, in, in the law, they call the notion acceptance of risk and from the perspective of COVID, if you do not get vaccinated, you have a much higher risk of coming down with COVID than somebody who is vaccinated. And again, depending on you know what your health status is and what your underlying health conditions are, again, if you're not vaccinated, you have a much greater risk of, of ending up with a bad result. Not saying statistically that it's a huge risk, depending on what category you're in, but you have a much greater risk of coming down with COVID. Jeff, remind everyone that mask mandates are temporary it's not forever it's temporary until this thing passes well no that that i guess that that's sort of the point of all this they aren't temporary i, I mean at this point in time i'm not sure COVID is ever going to pass I mean, seriously, it goes back to what we were talking about in the last half hour. I mean, you think, okay, we've been worried about the Delta variant, the Delta variant, the Delta variant. And then all of a sudden on Thursday, you get, well, we've got this new variant that's out there and we don't know anything about it. But now we're all scared that this is going to come in and this is going to be like the next plague. No, I mean, I why do we think this is temporary? Actually, I, I think this idea of mask mandates and stuff like that from the government that wants to impose it, I, I think it's it's a permanent and a perpetual type of thing. I, until this thing passes, tell me when COVID is going to pass. 
I mean, seriously. And for people who say what's going to pass when everybody gets vaccinated, well, everybody's not going to get vaccinated. That's just kind of the reality that's out there. And now we might be being told that even if you're vaccinated, that might not protect you against some new form of variant. We don't know that. I don't mean to be alarmist about it. But this idea that these are temporary restrictions, I'm I'm sorry. I, I think we're kind of past that. When does when does this end? And don't get me wrong. If you want to wear a mask out in public because you're vaccinated and you nevertheless think it gives you it's going to give you some added protection or you don't want to run the risk of running across somebody who's unvaccinated, who might be particularly vulnerable and you might be a breakthrough case and you might transmit it. Okay, I mean, I I appreciate that. That that's that is your decision to make. I respect it. I think nothing about that. But I don't think the government should be telling people that, okay, once again, we need to go back and everybody wears needs to wear a mask inside vaccinated or not. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Um, yeah, I have to laugh about how times change. If you go back and you look at some of the shows, some of the old TV shows from the golden era of television, the Andy Griffith show, I Love Lucy, the Dick Van Dyke show, a number of those shows, when they originally aired, what they used to do is they used to feature the characters smoking. Matter of fact, cigarette companies um you know, were, were sponsors of a lot of these these shows. So, you know, you watch Dick Van Dyke, you watch Andy Griffith, you watch I Love Lucy. They're, they're smoking cigarettes all, all the time. Now, in some of the reruns, they've gone back and they've kind of digitally altered them and they've taken out some of the scenes. But, you know, we're, we're really we're, we're concerned about smoking. That That's kind of like the, the ultimate no-no even though it was something that was very, very commonplace back in the 50s and, and 60s. the um, Over the weekend, and I, I mentioned this, and this was the lead-up to our Pop Culture Corner topic on Friday. Um, over the weekend, on, on Disney+, Plus, they, they dropped a, a seven-hour, three-part documentary on the Beatles on, on the making of the movie, Get uh, of the record Get Back. And um, it was done by Peter Jackson, who's the guy that did the Lord of the Rings thing. Over the weekend, I, I watched the whole thing. It's... It's it's long, and what it does is it follows the the Beatles on it, it's like day by day over three weeks, and it shows how they're they're making the, the record that turns out to be Get Back, and how they're creating songs for that, and they're also trying to plan for a TV special or a live concert or something that ends up them you know playing on the rooftop of of their building. But it, it's it's interesting. I. I, I found it to be fascinating, but I like that kind of stuff. It, it's it's very interesting also because you, you see the creative process. The, the, you, you can watch Paul McCartney, for example. He's, he's just working on verses to what becomes Get Back. And you can just watch them going back and forth, and they're throwing out lines, and you can just see how these songs develop, which is – how I've always understood songs develop where you get a, you get a verse and then you just keep playing the verse over and over and over again and you start throwing in words till you actually get it. So it, it was, it was, it was a very interesting thing. Again, maybe a little bit long and you need to sort of be a hardcore fan to watch it. But the really interesting thing about this and it shows the Beatles and it shows them kind of bickering and all, but actually, I think it, it's not as confrontational as I thought it might be. But one of the real interesting things is this: this was this aired on Disney Plus, and apparently, when they were 
putting the documentary together, there were two things that the Disney wanted them to do, wanted Peter Jackson to do. He wanted it to, number one, delete the, the bad words, the, the swearing. There's not a lot of profanity in it, but there's, there's, there's a little bit of it, you know, and they're, you know, they're, they're using bad words like people use bad words. And so, first of all, Disney wanted them to delete the swearing, and Peter Jackson said, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and that was with the blessing of, uh, the estate of George Harrison and Ringo Starr and John and, uh, Paul McCartney. They all said, no, we, we want this to be an accurate portrayal of the way we talk to each other and stuff, and we don't want you taking out the swearing. The other thing that Disney wanted them to do in preparing this documentary is they wanted Wanted them to delete all scenes that showed them smoking, and in in the documentary, all of them appear to be, I don't know necessarily heavy smokers, but all of them are smoking a lot. And and that's Paul McCartney smoking cigarettes, he's smoking cigars, he might have been smoking something else in a couple scenes. All of them, you know, have, have cigarettes, and they're smoking a lot during the course of the documentary. But it, of course, you know, when you were if if you were 20-something in 1968 or 1969, chances are that, that you smoked cigarettes a- as well. So this is sort of this, this commonplace type of thing. It was interesting to me because apparently cigarette smoking has become such a, a forbidden topic in 2021. And I've already said, I, I don't understand. If you don't smoke, I don't understand why anybody would start. But apparently in 2021, it's become such a controversial thing that Disney, that has this great documentary, 60 hours of footage and stuff, they were concerned enough to say, well, we want you to cut out all the scenes that show the Beatles smoking. Ultimately, the documentarian, Peter Jackson, said, no, I'm not cutting out all the scenes that showed him smoking. Matter of fact, if you cut out all the scenes that showed him smoking, I don't know that you would have had enough for a seven-hour documentary. But that's that's what the big controversy was. It was normal in 1969. Now, how dare you show anybody smoking cigarettes in 2021? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Tomorrow, the United States Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on a a case coming from Mississippi, which could end up being the basis for ultimately overturning the case from the early 1970s, Roe versus Wade, which guaranteed a pretty much an unlimited constitutional right for women to seek uh, abortions. Here's the the situation. And, And the Supreme Court, they can do all sorts of things with it. They could overturn the Mississippi law that I'll tell you about in a minute. They could affirm the Mississippi law. They could decide the case on on other grounds. There's all sorts of different ways that they could move towards this. But but here's the deal. In Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court essentially said women have a constitutional right, an absolute right, my your body, your choice, to have abortions. And the only line they provided was, um, and unless and until the fetus um, was viable, which means that it could live outside the womb. Back then, that was typically about, uh, the, the thinking was that was 28 months, 28 weeks, you know, 28 weeks. So, you know, abortions within the first, you know, 28 weeks would, would essentially be permitted. 
as as our knowledge and as science has changed and evolved, um, now the, the viability standard is about 23 weeks. That's what they estimate. They say after about 23 weeks, they think that the, the fetus, the baby, should be able to live outside the womb. In Mississippi, they have passed a law which, with very, very narrow exceptions, like life of the mother and things like that, medical emergency, it limits discretionary abortions to the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, the way it works is about, that they estimate that about 95% of all abortions take place within 15 weeks. And the Mississippi law does not outlaw uh, uh, abortions. It simply says that, again, unless it fits into one of these narrow categories, in the state of Mississippi, you cannot have abor- an abortion after 15 weeks, which, again, covers 95% of the abortions. The issue, then, is I guess that the Supreme Court could do a number of things. They could say, all right, look, um, we're, we're going to just adhere to Roe versus Wade. This 15-week thing is arbitrary. Boom, and so we're going to continue with the viability test, 23, 24, 25, 28 weeks, whatever that's going to be. So we're going to continue with Roe. What they could do is they could say, no, we, we think that this 15 weeks makes some degree of sense because it doesn't focus necessarily on viability, but it focuses on, okay, when does the baby start to develop a heartbeat and things like that, even if it technically couldn't be able to live outside the womb. Or they could come up with some other variation. But um, it's it's all about whether or not states – now, this isn't about a state eliminating the right to an abortion. This is the state putting in a law that limits the time limit for the abortion. And in the case of Mississippi, they say within 15 weeks. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If the Supreme Court were to uphold the Mississippi law, what that would do is it would allow, I think, each state an opportunity to go in, take another look at this, and decide whether or not they want to limit the time within which somebody can choose to get an abortion. Now, that doesn't mean, for example, in in Wisconsin, that the governor and the legislature would decide that, hey, we we want to restrict it to to 15 weeks or we want to restrict it to lower or or whatever. It, It doesn't mean that they would act in that fashion. It would simply say states could set their own limits if the Supreme Court were to uphold the uh, Mississippi case. So let's go where angels fear to tread when it comes to talking about this issue. And I understand it is extremely controversial. We're not, this case doesn't talk about denying women the right to have an abortion. It does, however, say the state of Mississippi should have, and it's the argument, should have the right to limit how late into the pregnancy the woman has to get the abortion. And in the case of Mississippi, they're saying 15 weeks because by that time you've got a fetal heartbeat, the uh, fetus is starting to take shape, etc. And even though it might not technically be viable, that is able to live outside the womb, and that won't happen for another month or two. Still, the argument is it, it, it's a person. 855-616-1620. Should we limit the time period within which women can get abortions? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I honestly don't know 
what the Supreme Court's going to do with this Mississippi abortion case. You could affirm the law without overturning Roe versus Wade. For example, you could say, all right, that uh, the right now Mississippi would say, okay, you, you ha- only have until 15 weeks to get the abortion. They could say, well, that's okay. We're not overturning Roe versus Wade. We're just saying that requirement doesn't put an undue burden on, on women. You could do that. Then, of course, the argument is, well, what happens if a state comes in and says, okay, you, you can't have an abortion. You, you only have the first six weeks or something. And that's maybe a case that you decide another day. Or you could simply say Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. It's presidential. We, we're not going to, we're not going to touch this. And the rule is going to maintain, stay at viability. 855-616-1620. I honestly don't know what they're going to do. I wouldn't be surprised if they uphold the law, though. Let's talk. And by uphold the law, I mean uphold Mississippi's law that says you have 15 weeks to do it, especially given the fact that the numbers are 95 percent of women who choose to have abortions choose to have them in the first 15 weeks of of pregnancy. So that you the argument would then be, look, that this is not given the fact that the overwhelming majority of women who have abortions have them in those first 15 weeks. This is not an undue burden. Um, by, by limiting to 15 weeks. That's what the argument would be. And I could see how that could be attractive to people who have been troubled by Roe versus Wade all along. All right, let's start with Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. Oh, by the way, I like the Gary Wright uh, music for the intro. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I guess my thoughts go toward, is it a prudent thing to do? Is it a sensible thing to do to send up a test balloon for a state, Mississippi, that uh, you know, just by coincidence, does rank the rank the rank the lowest in uh, education, health, our healthcare system, and income in this country, and that's setting a precedent for the rest of this country. Is that um, the most prudent thing to do for an issue that is so polarizing? No matter which side of the aisle you are on. I, I'm not sure I understand your, a, your, your. I'm not sure I understand your point. You, if are you saying that? Uh, because Mississippi has all the, these other, you know, the, the educational stuff and all, that it would be a better test case if the case came out of Ohio or out of Wisconsin as opposed to Mississippi? Exactly. I, I think that some people may interpret this as easy pickings to pick to choose a state that is the lowest in our health care system, education, and income level. And unfortunately, there is a direct correlation between income level and education level. Uh, should is this a mistake by choosing some state that fits the pri- parameters of not being middle road America and not re- maybe representing the rest of this country? Well, thanks for calling. I mean, I guess I, I'm still exactly kind of trying to grasp. I guess what what you're getting at. I the the, the bottom line is that you have state by state in this country. I, I think we, we have we have schisms in in this country. You know, there, there's red states and and there's blue states, and I, I guess there are there are states in the South, and, and you know, Mississippi would certainly be one of them, and Alabama and Georgia and you know, South Carolina, I, a number of the states in the South where I, I think abortion. Maybe it's viewed by a majority of the residents of that state in a different way than it might be viewed by residents of Maine or Massachusetts or Connecticut or Vermont or, or whatever. That's why I think if the Supreme Court does, for example, uphold Mississippi's law, 
that doesn't mean, in my opinion, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm pretty much guarantee it, that doesn't mean that abortion is somehow going to become illegal in, in this country. It might mean that in some states, for example, Mississippi, the the time limit you know, is, is going to vary. Um, now, the question to me, like I was saying a minute ago, that the court's going to be grappling with is, it, if, if you have a state that says you have you have first 15 weeks of pregnancy to have the abortion and you can't do it in that state afterwards, is that an undue burden on the woman? And to me, I guess, I mean, if I was arguing this case for the state of Mississippi defending it, I'd be saying, well, judge, I mean, the, the, the facts are 95% of the abortions are, are held within that before that first 15 weeks. So we're not denying women the right to have an abortion. We're not substantially, you know, burdening that. And then it goes to the other question becomes, you know, is there a difference? And if you look at, if you assume that the fetus is not viable outside the womb, but you know, is there a difference in fetal development between eight weeks, say, and 17 weeks? And I think the answer there is, is clearly yes. This is, it's, this has been an issue, which has been one of the issues of our times. I mean, of course, since 1970, it's, it's somewhat taken, gone on the back burner because of, of the nature of the procedure and the fact that, you know, you now don't, don't have to necessarily go to clinics to have this done. You can get pills and things like that, and, and you can, you know, you don't have to walk a gauntlet, for example, to go into these various clinics. I don't know how the court is going to decide this. I, I think there's been aspects of Roe versus Wade that even if you think it's the right result, some of the reasoning ha- has always been troubling to a lot of people. And I think the court's going to use this as an opportunity to take a look at that. Are they, in fact, going to toss Roe versus Wade? I, I don't think so. But they could affirm this Mississippi law, limiting it to 15 weeks. They could do that without tossing Roe versus Wade, they could just say, hey, this is the balancing test. Now, then you know, if they do that, inevitably there's going to be another state that comes in and says you can't have abortions after six weeks or something like that. So that case then goes back up to the Supreme Court. I'm going to be fascinated to listen to these arguments tomorrow, though. Well, he's got more problems now than simply being called Fredo. Remember Chris Cuomo, who is the CNN commentator slash anchor, and um, he, he got very, very offended. Um, his brother was former governor of New York and presidential wannabe candidate Andrew Cuomo, and uh, Chris Cuomo got very offended when he, he was referred to sort of derisively a lot of times as as Fredo, reference to Fredo Corleone, you know, kind of the, the weaker, dumber brother in the Godfather series. And he got very offended by, oh, how dare you say that? That's a slur on Italian-Americans and stuff like that. And, and it was it kind of showed this sort of thin skin because it, it wasn't really a, a shot on Ital- Italian-Americans. Admittedly, the Godfather character was Italian. But when you call somebody, when you say, hey, Fredo, you know, <laughs> he's Fredo, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of, you're making, you're referencing the, the, the weaker, dumber younger brother that that's what the thing is and and he chose to kind of play the oh this is terrible i'm being slurred because i'm italian american he chose to play that card and get a little bit of sympathy but chris cuomo has much worse problems now than being labeled fredo um it's i think everybody knows the the scandal that his brother 
Andrew got involved in and, you know, all these different instances of, of sexual harassment involving women. And, and ultimately, I mean, the strategy was deny, deny, deny. And then ultimately it just became too overwhelming and he ended up, you know, resigning somewhat in disgrace. Well, all right, it, it's getting worse because uh, there's transcripts of the interviews and investigation that the New York State Attorney General had conducted. And they they just released them yesterday, two days ago. And what's what is coming out is that Chris Cuomo, the CNN anchor, was up to his neck in advising his brother Andrew how to handle the, you know, um, ongoing scandal. The records show that he gave detailed feedback on his brother's statements to the press. He gathered information about upcoming stories involving his brother's accusers. You know, hey, this this woman is she's going to be coming forward and saying you groped her or whatever. Well, you know, here's what we know about her. So in F- essence, you know, he, he was acting as again, a confidant and an advisor for her bro- his brother. Now, don't get me wrong. I I understand this. My my brother Scott is, without a doubt, my best friend. I would I say I love him like a brother. I love him more than you could possibly love a brother. He's my best friend, and I, I think you know we we are we are as close as you possibly can imagine. You know, and he I think would tell you that over the years he's uh, he always refers to me as his significantly older brother. I'm seven years older, but I think he would tell you that over the years I've kind of been a mentor to him and things like that, and we are extremely close. If if my brother were ever in a situation where he was involved in the object of some sort of, of public scandal, like Andrew Cuomo was, there, there's no question where my loyalties lie. And, and there's no question that I would be doing anything. I, I would be advising my brother. I'd be working with him. I would be trying to do everything I possibly could to... I don't want to say minimize that, but to try to help him work his way through what whatever those problems were. We're brothers. That's what family does. I'm not talking about ethical violations or things like that, but I'm talking about, yeah, that's where my loyalties lie. My loyalties lie with my family. And I think, you know, for most of you, if you ask that question, hey, if your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad was in was in trouble and, you know, was involved in a scandal or something, would you want to help them? And, and the answer is, I, I think most of us would say, yes, maybe there's somebody here or there that says, ah, let them, you know, let them flail. But that's not the reaction with most people. So I understand the, the, the motivation and I, I understand what's going on. But if it was a situation, for example, where uh, again, in in my role as a commentator or something, and my brother's involved in the middle of a scandal, I, I just I, I I recuse myself. There there's no way I talk about it on the air. There's no way that I you, you set up you maybe you end up leaving your job if you decide that you know you really want to go that there's that much of a conflict. But I understand why you put your brother first. I I get that, so I don't fault um, Chris Cuomo for that. What I do fault him for, though, is apparently trying to have it both ways. So while he's trying to be an impartial news person and, and actually even offer stuff like that, behind the scenes, you know, he, he's working to advise his brother. He's using the resources that he has access to at CNN to try to dig up dirt on the accusers. He's reviewing the different statements while other people at the station are then making news decisions as to what's newsworthy or not. It, it It's a big it's a big deal. And I guess, 
in light of these revelations, in light of the fact that this is something he was doing, presumably without the knowledge and or permission of of his bosses. I mean, it's not like he went to CNN and said, you know what, while my brother's going through this, I want to take a leave of absence. Okay, I want to... I want to go help him out. I want to be a confidant. I want to be an advisor. I want to review statements. I want to work on his behalf because I think he's unjustly accused or whatever. It's not like he said, I want to leave of absence. He's trying to do his job at CNN while at the same time, I think without knowledge of some of the people at CNN, he's using resources to try to help his brother. That is such a huge ethical violation. It's not funny. And it's just it's amazing to me that Chris Cuomo is still working there today. I would not be surprised if any moment that changes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So Mike Spaulding, getting ready to drive up to Green Bay and place some bets on uh, some sporting events? Um, I'm not going to make a separate trip, but if I find myself in Green Bay, I might wager a bit. Yeah, it, well, you know, when, when I go to Las Vegas, and I, I try to, I go once a year, maybe, or so, and, and I, I do, I end up in the sports book a lot. It, you know, playing slots does nothing for me, and I, I quickly get bored playing blackjack. So I end up, um, I end up sports betting and betting on horses and stuff like that because I find I lose money slower. It's it just, you know, <laughs> no, well, no, you, you know, you, you, you bet on a baseball game or whatever, and the game's going to take three hours, and you, you can sit there and you get a couple beers and you watch the game, whereas, you know, if you're going to lose your, and you've got a chance you can win, um, but, you know, if you're going to lose your money, you lose it slower than you can playing slots and things like that. Yeah, and there's like highs and lows. Yes, slots is, to me, so anticlimactic. You push the button and it's gone. Right. Yeah, and it, it's, so it's, yeah, I, I've never, so I mean, that that's it. I, I mean, um, is this going to be a big success, do you think? Um, I think it will perhaps draw more attention to the casino. Do I think people are going to make the extra trip, especially from southeast Wisconsin, when you could just go to Illinois? I don't know if it would draw those people, but I don't know if you're headed up to a Packers game that's a night game. Maybe you'll stop by and wager uh, a little bit. I like this. I personally like the sports book. I'm with you. I like sitting there and yeah. watching all the games and watching your money drain away a little bit slower than it would if you're playing cards or something like that. But um I think it'll draw some people. Now, will it inspire the entire state to get behind this? I I don't know. No, I think the real appeal is going to be um, where I think the real competition is going to be, quite honestly, is with bars and restaurants in, in the area because this is something else that you can offer to bring people in. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that's that's the idea. If, if, I, if I were Oneida... I mean, you you have the sports book, but I I build it around some really nice sports bars or stuff like that. So it's an attraction to draw people in. You can also you can bet on the game while you watch game, and and then indirectly maybe it helps the casino because okay you're you're there and after the game you're already there. Hey, let's go out. We'll go play cards or something like that. I I think that's. To me, that's as much of a benefit to the casino, helping bring people in, as actually the revenue they're going to generate by sports betting, if that makes any sense. No, I'm 100% behind what you were just saying. I think it will definitely either – you can build your day around it on a, uh, you know, a Sunday for a football game right. or something like that where you don't have to go play cards for two hours and then go. You can play cards for an hour, 
watch some games, go back to playing cards, eat. You know, I think anything that keeps you there longer. So I don't know if it would draw anyone who's not into gambling already or necessarily from if I'm going to be in, you know, Milwaukee or Kenosha. But I do think if you're up in the Green Bay area looking for something to do, it'll it'll keep you there. Well, well, right. And and that's where, I mean, if if I were a bar owner, if I ran, and I won't name some of them, but, you know, some of the big big Packers bars and things like that, I'd, I'd be upset today because... That would, again, that's where I think it would really be the competition because, hey, it's a Sunday afternoon, especially if you do it nice, you know, and you, you, you have a nice place where you can watch the game and the big screen TVs and you run specials on beer and old fashions and whatever. Plus, you do the same thing that the local bar owners do, but you can also offer that added thing about, by the way, come and play some bets on the Packers game. I think that's that's where the real value is. I will say, if they're looking to draw people in, one I was in Vegas over the summer, and we went to Circa, uh, which is like recently remodeled, and it has a beautiful sports book mm-hmm. in it in Vegas. And the seats were like uber comfortable, and it kept me sitting there for maybe longer than I normally would have because it was so comfy. So if you're listening, Oneida. Where did you go? Circa. I don't even know where that it, is. It's like in old Vegas. It's off of uh, Fremont. Oh, downtown. Yes, you downtown. were downtown. Yeah, yes, I we I were downtown. I, I rarely. I, I'm not. I, I didn't mean to snow. I mean, I just. I. I normally there. There's. I have my little routine in mm-hmm. places I go on the strip, and I, I rarely get downtown. And when I do, I get to the Golden Nugget, and then I walk up and down Fremont Street and look at all the interesting characters and watch the light show, and then go back to the strip. All right, it's kind of interesting. But to Mike's report, um, on the Oneida Casino now um, on. On the casino grounds, it's just on reservation property in Green Bay. They've become the first sports book, legal sports book in Wisconsin. A number of the other tribes, including I know the Potawatomi, are, are working really hard to try to renegotiate their compacts to uh, again get permission to, in addition to offering, you know, betting on on horses to also, you know, have not just a race, but also a a sports book. And my guess is if they've done this with Oneida, my guess is they're going to end up doing it again at Potawatomi and probably Ho-Chunk in the relatively near future. I I would imagine that that's kind of the ghost of Christmas future that's coming. Again, I don't think it's... um, I don't know how much demand there is for this. I mean, there's obviously... A, a little bit of demand. I, I don't know that you ha- you have this incredible desire that gee, we want to go down and place bets. Like I was saying, I think it's more the real value is more as an attraction. It, it's something that you know would draw people to the casino or draw people to the sports book because hey, you're going to go down and watch the Brewers game, but you can also bet on the Brewers game or the Bucks game or or whatever. And then of course, once you bring people through the doors. You know, who, who knows? It's you, you're there. You watch the game, and then you decide I'll, I'll go play some slots or something afterwards. I I don't have a problem with it. I, I guess I've my my more fundamental issue goes back years and years and years with the monopoly that we made the decision to give Native Americans when it came to gambling, and that that's that is a genie that is out of the bottle, and that you're you're never going to be able to get back. I, I think. You know, that's if you want to talk about, again, some of the f- perhaps fundamental unfairness in, in the business structure, it's OK, you, you've got the casinos that are offering bars and restaurants and you're also going to offer gambling as an added attraction. And they are also competing with bars and restaurants and hotels that aren't legally allowed to offer you know gaming. That's I think that's a legitimate beef. But like I say, that's an argument that, you know, we had 20 plus years ago and the, the genie is out of the bottle. Do I think this is going to be something that's going to generate 
millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of revenue. I, I Maybe I'm going to be wrong, but I, I don't think so. But it's clearly going to be a plus for the various casinos that are around. All right. As long as we are talking sports, there is a sports-related topic that I'm fascinated by, but you don't have to know anything about sports to have an opinion on it. I'll discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, Brian Kelly. You know who Brian Kelly is? Brian Kelly is the head football coach, or up until yesterday, was the head football coach at Notre Dame. And Golden Domers are incredibly irate about this. Uh, Brian Kelly has been the head coach at Notre Dame for 12 years. I think just in the last week or two, he became the winningest coach in the storied football program of, of, of Notre Dame. He also... He was well paid for that. Um, he made about five or six Emmas in million dollars a year for coaching at Notre Dame. And Notre Dame is in the running for the college football playoffs that they haven't, they haven't announced, you know, who's going to be in the top four. But depending on how things work out over the next weekend or so, it, Notre Dame has a chance to be one of the top four teams to play for the national college football championship. So the season is very, very much active. Well, Brian Kelly, who's been the head coach at Notre Dame for 12 years, announced yesterday that he's leaving Notre Dame. He's going to go to LSU and take the coaching job at Louisiana State University. Uh, the reports are he's going to be paid somewhere between 9 and $10 million to go coach at, at LSU. So he's you know, if not doubling his salary, he's coming close to doubling his salary. And I, I you know, you might say, well, who needs more than five million? But that, that's easy to say if somebody else is offering you nine million. The problem is he he's left Notre Dame really high and dry because their their season is not over. There's a, a chance that they have they might have a chance to play for the again collegiate football title. Maybe not. We we don't know yet. But but he's already said I'm gone. I, I'm I'm bailing on the the team. Apparently he didn't have a me- even have a meeting with the the team to tell them that he was leaving. They they completely and totally you know blindsided his his members of his staff was apparently completely blindsided as well. He didn't tell them anything. He just cut the deal. Then the deal became public, you know, after this had happened. So, you know, he's going to be making, you know, in the neighborhood of 9 to $10 million a year. It's a 12-year deal. So he's making a ton of money. Didn't give Notre Dame a chance to match it. He decided that he wanted to move. But, but he does this before the season is over. Now, there's no direct urgency i mean you know he could have he could have waited until after the notre dame football season was over to to leave would lsu have held the job for him i I don't know lsu might be taking the position that hey we've got uh you know we're 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 willing to pay you you know over a hundred million dollars over a 12-year contract but we want you to come here and we want you to come right away so we insist that you're you got to bail on your team you you got to leave them you know high and dry so they might have said that but he could have always said well no if you want me 
you, you've got to wait because I have a loyalty and I have a dedication and I've got to finish this season with the team that I played with. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This was apparently a legal thing to do. I don't think that there's any, I don't think that there's anything that Notre Dame can do to stop him from leaving and from doing this. But, you know, we often talk about, you know, college athletics not being, or being different than pros and it's supposed to be about the kids and we care about education and things like that. On the one hand, nobody, I mean, I certainly wouldn't fault this guy for leaving for more money if he thinks that that's a, a better opportunity or whatever to, to go to LSU. But, but the way he did it strikes me as being extremely sleazy. And I guess that's the word I want. Just it streams. It, if if I were a football player that had been recruited to come play for Notre Dame for this guy, and I played for this guy for for three or four years and contributed to his success, that put him in a position that you know he he could earn a hundred million dollars a year. I, I guess on the one hand, I, I'd feel a little bit betrayed that he was leaving. But but all right, that that's you got to look out for yourself. But the fact that he's leaving before the season is over, I think, says a lot about his character. Eight, and I think it's a sleazy thing to do. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I can understand why every player on that Notre Dame team and the Notre Dame administration would feel betrayed by this not that he wanted to leave not that he got a better opportunity but that he bailed at this point in the season and like i say if i were one of the kids that had been recruited and played for this guy for a few years and had busted my tail so that we were winning games so he could be in this position and i found out he's walking out on me before arguably maybe the biggest game of my college career i'd be hacked off 855-616-1620 we discuss in a moment Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, you sound like a Notre Dame fan. No, I'm really not. Coaches don't get noticed when they get fired. It's a business. And did I mention $100 million? Okay, here's the difference, though. All right, coaches who have contracts who get fired continue to get paid. All right. So it doesn't that that's what happens. You you get the contract. You know, they don't have to you don't have to coach the team. They can say, hey, you're gone. But the university is on the hook to pay them. In this particular case, the guy had a contract. He just they, they don't enforce these things because as a practical matter, when the coach comes in and says, I'm done, I want to leave. They, they have almost no choice. So it, it, it's different. He walked out on the team. Yes, he could have been fired at the end of the year. He could have been fired in the middle of the year, but he would have at least been paid. Here, he just left them high and dry. And I'm sorry, I just think it's, I think it is a sleazy thing to do. And that's the best word that I can come up with. Let's talk to Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, you're first. Hello. Um, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my phone call. Sure. No, I, on this topic, the same, the same thing happened with, with, with Wisconsin back when Bielema left what, after winning the Big Ten championship and then, and then the same thing when Gary Anderson left right. after they won the Big Ten championship. I mean, my general take on this topic is that, it, 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 and I think that the NC2A, whatever, should put in some sort of rules, rules around this topic. But if you're a coach, whatever, of a team, and I don't care if it's football, basketball, hockey, wrestling, swimming, you name it, um, volleyball, whatever, you should be you. They should be required to stay with that team until their season is com- until their season yeah. is complete. If they want to announce 
whatever, like this time of year, whatever that this is that that this is my last season at Notre Dame and I'm going to LSU next year. That's all fine. We're for recruiting purposes. That's all fine and dandy and good, but they should have a commitment to that team until their season is over with. And I and I really wish that the NC two A would come out whatever and legislate and legislate that practice. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Scott, because the NFL does have rules like that. I mean, there's, like, for example, there will be, if, if your team is in, in the playoffs, you know, and this happens a lot of times, you've got, like, the offensive coordinator for the New England Patriots who, who's in demand, but as long as the Patriots are playing in the playoffs, they, they, they can't cut deals with other teams. And so the other teams have to, now I'm sure there's some stuff that kind of goes on behind the scenes about, hey, we're interested, would he be interested, but that they, they can't leave those teams without permission until those teams' season is over to prevent this kind of disruption. And I guess if the NFL can do it, you'd think the NCAA would be able to do it. Yeah, and, and I agree. Because and, and to me, I mean, the, the, the biggest losers here are the student-athletes. Absolutely, it's the kids. Who, are, like, who, have, who have dedicated their time and their passion, whatever, to this one coach who recruited them, and then now just at the last minute, this guy gets a better offer from LSU, so yeah. he's going to cut bait with with the school and the and the athletes who he, who he's worked with over the years. Yeah, no, thanks. Right, and and that's I guess that's it. Not to mention the, you know, not to mention the fan base and and everybody who's just in, invested in this. I mean, okay, think about like like Wisconsin, and imagine if imagine if Wisconsin was playing for the big now they lost against Minnesota over the weekend so it becomes academic but imagine if Wisconsin was playing for the Big 10 championship today and 2 days ago you find out that the, the coach has just bailed on on the team and now you don't know who's going to coach them you don't know who's going to get ready for this if they win you don't know what it's going to be happening i mean imagine that situation and and to me again if if we're talking about student athletes that's that's where this becomes, at least in my opinion, a, a huge issue. I, do I begrudge the guy making all this money? No, I, I don't. I mean, I don't begrudge people doing it. But my experience has generally been what goes around comes around. And if this is now going to be the, the, the sort of model, and again, you, you saw this earlier this week where what Lane Kiffin, who was the head coach at uh, Notre Dame, he, I'm sorry, Lincoln Riley, Lincoln Riley, who was the head coach at Notre Dame, not Notre Dame, at Oklahoma, um, he ended up leaving, and you know he, he's heading to USC. Well, at least Oklahoma wasn't playing; had didn't have the opportunity now to play to, for the national championship. They, they're going to have a bowl game, but at least their their regular season was over. Notre Dame in this situation is still in the thick of things, potentially to win the college football championship. Sorry, it just I don't begrudge people making money, but uh, this just strikes me as being wrong. When we come back, we'll find out what John McCure has on his mind for Wisconsin's Afternoon News.